Hey, what's up, Providence Church? My name is Jared. Welcome here. How are you guys doing today? That's good. Well, you might have to sit on your chairs a little bit closer, turn up your hearing aids, because I lost my voice a couple days ago, and it hasn't fully come back. So we'll see what happens. If I get 10 minutes in, I guess you get a 10-minute sermon today. So I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you. But anyway, hey... We are in Ephesians 6, like Jenna read, and um, we are talking today about what it looks like to be spirit-filled in the workplace, in our work. And I think uh, we might need a little help. Uh, Listen to these stats real quick about the reality of work in our country. Uh, The average person spends more than 90,000 hours at work in their lifetime. 87% of Americans have no passion for their job One-fourth of Americans say that their uh, work is their number one source of stress. I'm kind of surprised it's not higher. And half of America says that they have gained weight at their current job. Psychologist Barry Schwartz, I think I'm going to put this up here, he says it this way. He he summarizes it saying, 90% of adults spend half of their working lives doing things they would rather not be doing at places they would rather not be. Is anyone depressed about going to work tomorrow yet? I don't know why you're cheering for that. It doesn't make any sense. But um, the question is, is how do we find fulfillment at work? In America, there's probably two typical responses. And the first one is a response that says, you know what, I'm just gonna settle. Like this is just my job, it pays the bills, and I'm just gonna go and live for the weekend. That's one response. The other response, which is maybe a little bit more popular in today's uh, culture with the uh, emerging generations is that I'm going to skip job and skip job and move around and move around and go until I ultimately find my dream job. I know that I can find it one day. And Paul would say uh, from Ephesians 6 that to find your fulfillment in work, that neither of those are the thing. Pastor Tony Morita said it something like this. He said, um, in order to find fulfillment at work, you don't need to change jobs. You need to change masters. In other words, Jesus is uh, your boss. He's your new boss. And here's what Paul's going to tell us in this passage. He says that working is serving. That's going to be our, our main idea for today, that work is serving. Working is serving. So you may remember that over the course of the last uh, couple weeks, we have been going through Paul's household codes is what they're called. And so in those days, in the days of the Ephesians, um, there were uh, Greco-Roman influences and Jewish influences that set these parameters. They had these philosophies for how these main three relationships were supposed to work in their culture. So they each had a philosophy. And Paul is coming alongside those philosophies, specifically in these three areas about husbands and wives, fathers and children, and then um, uh, masters and bond servants, or some of your interpretations even say slaves. And, and Paul's giving us uh, some gospel clarity to this. Now, I think that a lot of us in the room, when we think about marriage or our marriage, we are willing to let uh, Jesus inform that and lead that. And I think that when it comes to the, the second relationship of fathers and children or parents and children, I think that most of us, if we're Christ followers, say, yeah, I should probably learn how to function in my family as a parent or as a child like Christ would want me to function. But the question for us today is, are you willing to let Jesus inform and lead how you work and how you pursue work? 
and the reality that, that your dreams for your work might not actually be his dreams? Are we willing to come underneath our true master in this area where we're going to spend 90,000 hours of our life? Uh, my, with uh, this passage, I think Paul's hope and my hope is, is one of shifting from ourselves and our work to one shifting outward, this idea of service. You know, uh, when you have your, your iPhone and you have your camera on, um, it, it's, it's kind of like this in our work that when you have your camera and it's facing toward you, like you're looking at yourself, like when you're ready to take a selfie, that's the mode that we have it on a lot of times, Right. But the idea that Paul is trying to do with our work is to take the picture off ourselves and hit that button and flip the camera around so we're not thinking about ourselves only in our work and what we're getting out of it, but we're actually looking outward to figure out how we can serve Jesus and how we can serve others. I think that's what this passage does for us today. And we're gonna take an interesting approach to this. Um, we're gonna go through the passage two different times. Uh, and we're gonna talk once, uh, the first time, about what it meant in that culture, in that day, for slaves and masters. And then we're gonna talk about what it means in today's culture. So going through the passage twice, which means it's gonna be an hour and 10 minute sermon. So just stick with me. No, we're gonna keep it moving here. Um, but, but we're gonna look at what it looks like for today, most uh, applicably, ac- applicably to uh, the relationship of employers and employees. So first, let's talk about then. Let's talk about it, what it meant to them. So. Let's get verse six up here, or first uh, five, I mean. And look at this first. We'll just read the first line. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, if you have an older ESV translation like I have or an NIV translation, it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And I assume that as you hear that, you say, whoa, wait a minute. That's in the Bible? That's not okay. And actually, that should be your reaction because our context of slavery is one that is um, quite horrific, really. We grew up in schools, in elementary schools, and middle schools, and high schools, where in history class, we learned about the transatlantic slave trade, which happened uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, where uh, people literally went to the continent of Africa and captured people from their homeland and, and put them in horrific conditions on ships across the Atlantic, transferred them into their land of America, and people mistreated them. They treated them as property and couldn't have been any more demeaning or undignifying to a group of people, all because a group of white people thought they were superior. And sadly, some of those people were Christians. And they took verses like this to take it out of context. Can I say, Jesus in the Bible does not support slavery. Neither of them support slavery. And I think the context of this passage could help us out a bit because slavery actually was, or bond servitude was a little bit different then. So in the first century, in Paul's world, uh, there would have been 60 million slaves approximately in the ancient Near East world. And in the city of Ephesus, it's approximated that about one third of the total people would have been slaves or bond servants. And their circumstances depended entirely on their master. So one person could have a master that mistreated them and abused them. And another uh, slave could have a, a master that treated them like family, had them in the home. And, and they had um, just, just wonderful conditions. And here are a few distinctions that really might help us figure out who Paul is talking to in the first part or in this whole passage. So 
It's important to know that some people did become slaves in those days because they were uh, taken under captivity in war and some people got sold by their parents into slavery. So they were kind of forced into it. But then yet there were another group of people who actually volunteered themselves into slavery. And they did this, um, some to, to pay off a debt, uh, some to get uh, solid work experience, some because uh, they were ethnic outsiders and through uh, going through this process, the slavery process, they could at the end be freed and actually become Roman citizens. Slaves in that day were actually fairly well educated. Many slaves were actually better educated than their masters. Kind of crazy, right? And slaves were, in those days, were known to hold jobs. Some, some of them were philosophers. We have that on record. Uh, some of them uh, were higher education professors, like they were university-level professors. And other, others of them were even physicians. Here's a couple other interesting facts that slaves in those days could own property, they could own other slaves, and many actually gained their freedom by age 30, and very importantly, race or ethnicity was not actually a factor. Now, I don't say this to condone the the system of slavery that was existing in that day, but I say this to kind of put a picture forward that the, the, the hope of having a semi-healthy or semi-functional system was a lot more of a reality back then than it is uh, with the 19th century American slave trade. And I, you're saying, okay, okay, Jared, you made your point. Like slavery is different then than now. But why didn't Paul just come out and say, eradicate the whole thing? Like, like let's just do away with the whole thing. Well, there are a couple piece, more pieces of context that could help us with this because we have to remember these guys did not live in 2019 in America where uh, on YouTube and Twitter, every day people are trying to start revolutions and they have a voice because they've got the internet or they've got a cell phone and a video or whatever. There are uh, some different factors. So two things about the context a couple thousand years ago. The first one is this, that Christians were on the fringe of society. There would have been no hope for any sort of uh, institutional change to go after that because Christians were outsiders. They were outcasts. They were thought of as other. They didn't have a listening ear. They had no power in the society. And actually, they didn't uh, even have the sheer numbers to do anything. It was a very small number of them back then. The second thing is um, that the the idea of uh, upsetting this institution is actually not the context of the letter. The personal context of the letter is Paul writing to some beloved friends and family members uh, in this church in Ephesus who he loved dearly, who were going through something difficult, who were trying to figure out what does the gospel look like? What does it look like to be spirit-filled in this world where there's this weird authority thing that's really all out of whack? How are we supposed to respond there? Now, here's maybe a modern day example of what I mean. Like if your friend calls you or texts you and they're going through marriage problems and marriage issues, you don't spout back at them by talking about uh, marriage laws and legal proceedings that have to do with divorce. You sit there and you listen and you hear them and you compassionately empathize with them and then you speak directly into their situation. That's kind of the idea of what Paul is doing here. He sees his friends struggling and he's trying to address their heart first. Hey, here's what you can do right here, right now. <clears throat> so Paul in this section first addresses uh, slaves. 
Uh, in that day, in, in Ephesus, they had a reputation for being uh, lazy and for being liars. And I imagine when they were sitting down and hearing this letter read for the first time in their congregation, they were probably like, whoa, Paul just gave a shout out to us. He's, he's addressing us as bond service. What's he have to say? And so Paul, knowing their reputation, says, hey guys, um, I know that you've come under Jesus and you're willing to follow him. You're willing to obey him. You need to start showing some respect to your master. You need to obey your masters like you're obeying God. You need to have a sincerity. He says, don't, don't be people pleasers or just work for icebergs. In other words, don't, don't like fake it and try to be good and then leave all this other work undone. Work wholeheartedly and sincerely like you would for Jesus, knowing that that matters. And they said, those little things that you do, there will be a, a, a reward for them. And the reality is, is, is bond servants, you have the opportunity to, to be humble and show your masters what the gospel looks like, that someone could come in and, and serve you completely. So you see what Paul is doing here. He's not reinforcing their low position in this. He's coming in and he's saying, no, 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 bond servants, you have value. You have purpose and you have a role to play. I have put you in this situation. I have given you these relationships and now I'm empowering you with my spirit to walk in a way that would show your masters, Jesus, you have a role to play in the kingdom. You have dignity. You matter. Paul is elevating them through the gospel. And for the masters, uh, Paul starts off he gives a, a, a strong uppercut to, right off the bat. And he says, hey, masters, um, do the same to them. Like, I know you, you, you think you've got the power, but, but turn around. If they're going to love you like Jesus, then you need to go and love these people like Jesus. I don't care what the culture says. Stop threatening them. Stop lording power over them. He's saying working is serving. So serve them. And newsflash masters, by the way, you think you are the master, but really, uh, as he says in, in um, uh, verse nine, uh, actually there's one true master and that's Jesus. And you guys both have the same master. And Paul ends in verse nine with this idea that there is no partiality. He was saying to these masters, hey, masters, you're gonna walk out that door and you're gonna be the ones who are celebrated. People are gonna look at you as the ones who have the money, who have the possessions. You are the esteemed. You are the ones who are uh, high and raised up in, in society. And then slaves, you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna be the ones who are looked down upon. You're gonna be the ones who are slighted. You're gonna be the ones without dignity. And Paul is saying here through this partiality comment, he's saying, hey guys, Jesus just leveled the playing field. This is not about what they say. This is about how Jesus sees you. And the reality is, is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And through your self-sacrifice for one another, you can actually show that Jesus found you both in your muck and mire. He died for you both. He freed you both. And now there is one master and there's two servants, two servants being slave and bosses or masters. And this is the scene in the Ephesian church in the first century of the high and the low sitting beside one another in a church service and worshiping together and loving one another wholeheartedly. I think we could probably learn a few things from the first century Ephesian church, right? John Stott says this in regard to this passage. 
He said the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution of slavery. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. Although Paul didn't take aim at the institution of slavery in this passage, he does in others, but he doesn't take aim at it in this passage. He's saying that what God started doing in the hearts of these little churches in the first century eventually flowed out to the point where slavery was eventually eradicated. Sadly, it took way, way, way too long, 1,800 years. Now, with this gospel paradigm in mind, how Jesus levels the playing field about how this working is serving one another, what do we do with this? Well, probably the most, uh, the most clear application is for us in a position of authority when we're doing work, which would be employees and employers. Uh, we can uh, take our relationships and tie them to each of these categories and get a really practical view of what it would look like for us to live for Jesus or live spirit-filled in the workplace. So um, let's take this time and, and first address the employee, address the employee, because I'm assuming, one, that's probably most of you in the room, that you're employees and not employers. And uh, the second thing is, is, he takes the majority of his time and addresses that first. We're going to take our, the majority of our time on that. And let me say this to you before we read uh, the first verse, that working is serving. It's serving Jesus. It's serving other people people. It's serving the greater good of God's kingdom purposes here in Omaha. Now, there's three specifics that Paul, that I want to pick up on that Paul gives us. And the first one is this, serve respectfully. Serve respectfully. In verse five, it says, um, uh, in verse five, it says, uh, bond servants, it says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling is probably most easily translated or most, uh, yeah, directly translated as this idea of respect or serve them or obey them respectfully. Now, respect takes a massive amount of humility. Uh, think of bond servants in that day. A lot of them lived with families. And so they would have seen the ins and outs. They would have seen their masters and everything they did. They would have seen their bosses and, and all of their good parts, all their bad parts and everything in between. And Paul doesn't say, hey, respect your, respect your master if they deserve it. Paul just gives them the command to respect. Now, the, the hard part about this is that you know the worst of the worst about the people that you are closest to. Like, for example, who knows how bad of a husband I can be? My wife does, right? Who knows how bad of a roommate you can be? Your roommates, right? Who knows how bad of a boss your boss can be? You do, because you work with them every single day. And the reality is, is that you could talk behind their back you could have them be the butt of all the jokes in the office. You could even, uh, you, you could even focus tunnel vision on their worst qualities and hammer those in their head and, or in your head with others and talk about the worst of the worst all the time. But Paul says, no employees respect 
or esteem them. And everything inside of us uh, tells us, okay, especially if you have a bad boss, it's like, man, do I really need to respect? I don't want to respect. They don't deserve my respect. That's what our heart tells us. That's what our mind tells us a lot. But the gospel would tell us something different. The gospel would tell us that we have been picked up from a low place and we have been lifted high by Christ and that we have been given everything. We have been given a a heavenly citizenship. We are brothers and sisters, part of the family of God. We have been given every spiritual blessing. We are not in a place of scarcity. We are in a place of abundance, even as an employee. And so we have been lifted so high. And so we don't have to climb and scrape to try to tear down our boss to feel better about ourselves and put them in our place. We have been lifted so high by Jesus that we can selflessly respect them, even at times when they don't actually deserve it. The call is to serve respectfully, like we serve our master Jesus respectfully. The second one, also from verse five, is to serve sincerely. Serve sincerely. Can we put the, the, the verse back up there? Um, right after it says, uh, obey with fear and trembling, it says to do it with a sincere heart. Uh, This is maybe uh, an easier translation is single-mindedly. Have this single-mindedness toward toward Jesus and and as you're having a single-mindedness toward your work and uh, your boss or your employer. Now he gives a caveat in the next line that says, hey, by the way, if you wanna know what this doesn't look like, it doesn't look like being a people pleaser. It doesn't look like just trying to impress someone by way of eye service. I think you know what this is like. You've experienced this before. How many of you were in high school sports? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, 16 people were in high school sports. I don't believe you, but... I played basketball in high school, and what happened is at the beginning of practice, the worst part of every practice by far was when we did defensive shuffle drills, which lasted for like an op- uh, just an eternity. And you'd get down, I'm gonna do this. Get, I'd get down like this, and you were supposed to shuffle back and forth, slap the ground like a Duke basketball player, and shuffle back the other way, and you would go back and forth and back and forth and back for hours, I mean, not hours, but it seemed like hours. And you better believe that when the coach turned his back on me, all of a sudden, I'm not down, but I'm kinda sloughing along, going at about half the speed. Who wouldn't do that? Everyone does that. But when he turns around and he's looking my way, or when he's right in front of me and he's looking directly at me, you better believe I was the most dedicated athlete with the best form you could ever imagine. I mean, just making him proud like my own father. So. The, uh, the question that we have to ask is, uh, what happens at work when no one's watching? What happens at work when no one is watching? The reality is, is that, that Jesus is our uh, true master and he can't be fooled. And I don't say that to say that his eyes are watching you and he's trying to get you. No, it's, it's the opposite of that. His perfect work on the cross has come and he has saved you. He has plucked you out of your place and now he has gifted you and he has wired you and he has empowered you and he has 
placed you in your job and now he has given you the spirit to, to be able to fill you, to be able to go out and to be able to serve him wholeheartedly, to be able to serve sincerely and single-mindedly. He has put you on mission to be able to do this. And so when we are at our work with this in mind, when we say no, to Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, we are actually saying yes to our master Jesus. When we say no to just sitting around and wasting time and doing nothing, we are saying yes to our master Jesus and serving him sincerely. When we are saying no to just trying to be impressive and look good when the team is around or when the boss is around, but instead we actually carry that hard working attitude all of the time, we are actually saying yes to Jesus. <clears throat> question is, is are you trusting him as uh, your true master in this area? Okay, the last thing is this, to serve loyally, serve loyally. If you look at verse um, seven, it says, it talks about serving, and it says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This idea of goodwill is one of, of being loyal, being loyal to Jesus, but being loyal to the purposes that he gave us to work in the first place. It's kind of broadening our, our perspective out to this kingdom purpose that he has for our job. Now, Providence, listen to this. When you go to work, it is not just a thing where you go for a specific time, you do some responsibilities, and then you hopefully grab some sort of paycheck for it and then move on to the next thing. That is not the idea because God is actually using our work to bless others. The great reformer Martin Luther actually picked up on this idea and taught about this idea of, of vocation, saying that, that God provides for us through the work of others. He provides for us through the work of others. And he used an illustration I'm going to kind of expound on, but this is kind of the idea he said. He said, when you pray the Lord's prayer, give us our daily bread. When you ask God to provide your daily bread, gluten-free bread, if you're correct, the idea is that, that God provides that bread through a farmer. But, but let's back up a little bit. It actually doesn't start with the farmer. It actually starts in a John Deere factory, right? With some factory workers assembling uh, farm machinery. And then from there, it works through a salesman who actually, hopefully, honestly, sells this combine to the farmer. And then it works through the farmer cultivating the land and harvesting the crop. And then it works through a truck driver who transports it. Uh, and then it works through bread factory workers who are making bread. And then it works through a delivery truck driver who is delivering this to stores. And then it works through a, a night uh, shift uh, a shelf stocker at a grocery store. And then it works through a cashier at a grocery store. And finally, it gets into your hands, you see how everyone is a part of this process of God providing us our daily bread. Our jobs actually have purpose and each job when done with loyalty to God brings about God's kingdom. If it is truly honorable work, it blesses and provides for others. So let me just give a couple examples. So teachers in the room, I know there's some of you, uh, don't just go to work for a paycheck. You're like, wait, teachers don't go to work for a paycheck. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Let me try again. How, teachers, don't go to work to just have your class hit the scores. 
or to be at a certain level on this. Go to class and work knowing that God has entrusted you to be a nurturer of little souls to grow up. For people who work in healthcare, and I think there's a lot of you in the room, you guys don't go to work for a paycheck. And don't go to work just to, to see a patient, to chart a little bit, and, and then to, to get your shift over with and to go home. But know that God has given you a gift and a kingdom outpost to help the physical flourishing of God's image bearers in this world. It's important for people with highly relational jobs like salesmen and realtors and maybe people in customer service, people who work with people all the time, advisors of sorts. Man, the reality is you could take the quickest route to a quick buck and try to get this person's money, but God has called you to lovingly help people invest in the best way possible. You are in the business of human flourishing. Get this, in New York City, um, they have uh, an Olympics that they call uh, the Sludge Olympics. I don't know if you've heard of this before, where um, there's an Olympics for sewer workers, where they have competitions testing them out and the different skills that sewer workers do. What those are, I don't know. You'll have to read the NPR article. But while interviewed, one of the employees uh, of a sewer company in New York City called Wastewater, he said, if I wanted to get religious about it, I could say that we are the Jesus of the city because we suffer for everyone's sins. <laughs> we take everybody's dirty water and we clean it up for the environment. There is a gospel picture in working with the sewers in New York City, the question for you to ponder is, what is the gospel picture of my job? What is the redemptive purpose of the job, the kingdom purpose of the job? Employees working is serving. So we've spent a lot of time talking about employees. We're gonna spend a little time talking about employers because that's what comes up uh, next. And so um, employers, for those of you in the room, uh, I'm gonna start off the same way that working is serving. And you're gonna see this in verse nine. <clears throat> Can we put verse nine up there? It says, first, uh, employers do the same to them. So it starts off pretty strongly and says, hey, employers, if you're gonna expect people to respect you and work hard for you and work sincerely and, and, and do all of this stuff self-sacrificially, you need to do the same to them. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's how the gospel gets embodied when we are serving self-sacrificially. Now, a lot of you who are employers, maybe you're even self-employed, you may have started out at one point thinking, man, I cannot wait till I am the boss, till I am in charge, when I don't actually have to report to an employer, where I don't have to actually serve someone. And then you actually got to the point where you were an employer and you said, wait a minute, I don't have to serve one person. I've got to serve everybody now. Like all of these people need my time now. You have to listen to all of them. You have to have a plan of development for all of them. If they have a problem, now it becomes your problem. If they have created a mess at work, all of a sudden you have to help be a part of the solution. And it seems that way, employers, because it's true, because you're called to serve. <clears throat> Jesus could not have shown this 
this, this paradigm any clearer than in John 13 in the upper room when he was with his disciples right before he went to the cross and he gets out a towel in a wash basin and he sits down to wash his disciples' feet. Now in that day and age, that task of washing people's nasty feet was reserved for Gentile slaves in their culture that would have been the lowest of the low. But Jesus said, no, I'm doing this to you guys who are following me. Peter gets up indignant. He says, no, 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 you are not doing this to me. I'm not letting you serve me. And Jesus emphatically, because he was set on this upside down kingdom, this way of serving, he said, no, I'm gonna serve you in this way. And he washed all 12 disciples, nasty feet, even Judas, who he knew was later going to betray him. So employers, bosses, Yes, your job is to move the company forward. Yes, your job is to lead with vision. But the reality is, is employees are not nuisances to you. Employees are not barriers to get around because in Jesus' kingdom, your people are your work. Serving them is your work. And Paul gives a humble reminder after he says, don't threaten them, don't power play them, don't try to force them into this. He goes into the next section and he says, hey, just so you know, uh, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So employers, he's saying, hey, you think you're the boss and it says that on paper. It might even say that on on the plaque on your door, but the reality is, is that Jesus is the true boss. you actually both all have the same boss. And as long as you serve him, employers, this is not a, a hierarchy kind of thing. It's actually a race to the bottom. That's what Jesus showed us, that it's a race to the bottom. And so it may be a, a thing inside of the stirring that you want to, employers, climb the ladder. Maybe you're a boss of some people and you want to climb up and, and society would tell us, culture would tell us, hey, yeah, climb the ladder, do that because you're going to get more money. You're going to get a, a, a more impressive title and you might have more power over more people. And I think Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? You can have that ambition. You can climb higher. That's great. But when you do it, use that because now you can influence more people. Now you can serve more people. Employers, uh, Jesus has saved you too from a low place and has elevated you to a position of authority. So serve people and point them true to the true authority, the true boss, the true master. Jesus Christ. And in verse nine, the last phrase, it says um, that there is no partiality with him. There's no partiality with Jesus. I just think, man, what would happen in our workplaces if employers um, actually thought um, they weren't superior to anyone at their workplace? What would happen if all of our employers or some employers in the room here actually thought, you know what, I, I actually am not better than them, that we're really all on level playing field. Does not that you don't have the you don't have the same responsibilities. You don't have the same authority at work, but if you were truly on the same or that you were truly not better employers, I think God is calling you to, to create a, a new kind of culture where through your authority that's been given to you by God that you can serve and lift people up and empower people under you. This gospel serving environment, the church 
has an opportunity to show a different kind of workplace, a different kind of employee and employer relationship where, where, where working is serving. It's serving Jesus and it's serving like Jesus. And, and just to, to frame this out, to wrap up here, I just wanted to give you two questions to ponder very practically to know uh, what to do from here so you don't get kind of tripped up in knowing where to go next. And the first question I, I, I want you to think about is, what is the greater good I am serving in God's kingdom through my job? You have to understand your work from God's perspective. And so uh, a garbage truck worker or a custodian or a janitor or a sewer worker actually is in the beautifying business. For real, they really are. And if you are um, an architect or you're a construction worker, um, or even if you're creative and artist, you are in the you you are in a creative in a creating business to make this world better, to make it more sustainable. If you are in a highly relational job, your job is to help people and humans flourish. The list could go on and on and on. So, what good does your job actually? produce? What is the redemptive kingdom, godly part of your job? That's the first one. And the second one is simply this, how can I pursue serving instead of self-promotion in my job? This is pretty self-explanatory, but if working is serving, then we need to be listening to God, pausing, stopping, saying, okay, God, who are you or how are you calling me to serve at my job? I guarantee this will change our perspective and change what happens at work if we all live like this. Now, just a few pages before in, uh, in Ephesians, uh, Paul penned, right after painting this beautiful picture of the gospel, he penned Ephesians 2.10, which says, <coughs> for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for God, for good works. In other words, he's saying that if you're here and you are in Christ, you are his workmanship. You're like a sculpture of his. And yes, that's true about you, like who you are as a person, but it's actually the, the redeeming story, the, the death to life to growth story that is yours is actually God's masterpiece that he's leading. And now he's placed you in a specific position as an employee or as an employer. And now he's trying to fill you with his spirit so that you can live this out. And it says, God prepared this beforehand, these works beforehand that we should walk in them. And God has set in front of you works to do that he's trying to empower you to do. A lot of times we think of works and we think of churchy things or small groupish things or Bible-ish things. You know, God has given us this whole gamut of things that we can do for work. And your job is one of those. You have 90,000 redeemable hours for the purpose of God's kingdom. That is what God is trying to release each and every one of us to do, uh, could we adopt this model of working is serving? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you <clears throat> uh, for the fact that you have saved us. Thank you for the fact that um, you have uh, given us purpose. Thank you for the fact that you just haven't left us and said, hey, you know what? Uh, that 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 hours a week that you work at your job, uh, that's going to be pointless, but the rest of it, you can kind of live for me. God, you have given us 
purpose throughout. I pray that you would lift our eyes to you as our true master and that we would trust in you, walk with you, and that you would start by your spirit's power, start changing our perspective on how we view our work and the people at our work. Could we uh, live out this gospel paradigm of serving? Could we race to the bottom? Could we serve wholeheartedly, respectfully, sincerely, loyally? Oh God, we want to uh, work as a part of your kingdom. Uh, God, would you lead us and would we follow? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.